From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. At the start of the year, Mayor Wheeler reshuffled some of the city's biggest and most critical bureaus, including housing, transportation, parks, and fire, and he assigned them to new commissioners. You can see the full list here. Commissioner Carmen Rubio, for example, takes over housing from Commissioner Dan Ryan, and Ryan will now run the Parks Bureau. He will also oversee the Office of Civic Life and serve as the city's arts liaison and head up the Office of Equity and Human Rights. It's a big change the mayor says will help improve how the city manages and oversees bureaus and will help in the transition to the new city administrator form of government voters approved last fall. In this episode of Straight Talk, we hear from Commissioner Dan Ryan about the changes. What what it means for the city and what it means for the city's approach to homelessness. As the former head of housing, Ryan was very involved in the development of six safe rest villages. What happens to them now? Welcome to my guest, Portland City Commissioner Dan Ryan. Welcome back to Straight Talk. It's so nice to have you here again. It's great to see you, Laurel. And congratulations have, well, on being a grandmother once thank again. Thank you. Yeah. Fourth granddaughter. Yay. Thank you so much, Commissioner. Absolutely. You know, before we talk about all these new exciting challenges you have, let's take a moment just to reflect on the past year. What are you most proud of your accomplishments? I'm proud that being sworn in in uh, September of 2020, as you remember, we were quite a divided city. We were um, really uh, suffering, if you will, and there were some really big issues. And I really tackled a couple big ones. Um, I, I led the, the 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 service of our city in terms of permitting. We've been um, backlogged in permitting for a long time. And what what I found out when I asked Commissioner Maps to join me in this endeavor is that we had eight permitting bureaus. And when we had them come together and form a task force, I found out that many of them have never even met one another. So imagine if they're not working as a team internally, what it must have been like for the customers. So in two years time, we formed the task force. We started getting results. There's real time data that people can see. There's customer service surveys that go out. So there's actually communication between the customers and the bureaus. And there's one data point that I'm also really proud of, and that is over these two years, we saw an 80% improve, improvement when it comes to the how much time it took to ensue a, a permit and when it was actually given to somebody. So the, the duration went down by 80%. And that's, that's a start. And that's what everyone wants, whether you're a private household, a small business, low-income housing, or a big development. Because people had to wait a long time before. Yeah, yeah, and so it was just, it's an example where it's so important that we break down the silos and actually start working across bureaus and become one city with more efficiency. The other one, and really in a similar vein, was that when I had the dotted line assignment to the county on homelessness, my big motivation to run was that I didn't think we were serving those who were chronically homeless on the ground that have been there for more than two years, living on our streets with um, untreated conditions for mental health or behavioral health, and how to get someone like that into a stable place where they could actually be successful in housing. And so that's where the Safe Rest Villages came about. So the team, the Safe Rest Village team, we put together a really robust program. First, we had to decommission the three temporary sites that were put up by the mayor during the beginning of COVID. Those are on Water Avenue, two of them, and one in Old Town. And so we were able to decommission those because they weren't getting results and they were actually quite dangerous. And we then repurposed them. We have the BIPOC Village on Northeast Weidler. We have the Queer Affinity Village in Southwest NATO.
all of them are now getting results. We, in fact, have had over 70 people move into housing just over the last seven months from those. Um, Which uh, is the main goal of a safe rest village exactly. is to get people into permanent housing. Are you yeah. satisfied with that 70, 70 people? Yeah, because it's a start, but it, it was something that we weren't tracking before. And when someone's had a chance to actually be safe, to feel like they're connecting, you know, you're going from isolation and some shameful conditions to actually feeling safe, um, connecting with people, going from isolation to connections, a big part of recovery. And then it would allow the service providers to get to know them and help them uh, find their way into housing. And then we have the two other villages that opened up in Multnomah Village and also out on 122nd and Burnside Menlo Park. All of them are now up and running. Over 175 people are safe are sleeping safe tonight because of that, and we have four more to go. Well, I want you to think about one of your teachers and think, what grade do you think they would give you on, on your performance as the head of the Housing Bureau? I would say that when you put it all together, I'll give myself a B. I like being a B student. I think it's important <laughs> to have direction, not perfection. It's more important to do something than to hang out on the sidelines and, and make sure it's perfect. Uh, we're in a time of crisis and we need doers right now. I think uh, you know a few Portlanders might mark you down a little bit on how long it took with the Safe Rest <laughs> Villages. They may not understand that you had promised in the beginning to have them all open well, I'd by the end. I'd get a D on that. I'd get, a, I'd get an F on, <laughs> on promising on time, too soon. <laughs> timeliness, yeah. right, but you had promised by the end of 2021 all six would be open and yeah. it took till the June of 22 to open the first one and as you said you're still waiting to open three plus the the RV camp um, what took so long well, the headwinds weren't predictable um, once we got this uh, up and running we found out there was a lot more red tape with ARPA dollars and there were for the rescue dollars the previous ones that came from COVID we also found out that the supply chain issues had magnified in ways that no one could predict and quite frankly we didn't have the zoning in place and so what we've done is we paved the way so that now we understand how to do this. In fact, just this week we passed new legislation. We updated legislation. We have the shelter to housing that we passed in 2021 in April, but like any good legislation, once you apply it, you find out where the wrinkles are and what needs to be improved. And so we were able to make some of those adjustments. All of that came from feedback from the Safe Rest Village team. So now in Portland, we'll be able to put up temporary shelters, um, uh, alternative shelters, much quicker than ever before because of the good work, that the, the trail that was blazed by the Safe Rest Village team. Well, some Portlanders also might mark you down a little bit on occupancy. They've criticized that some of the Safe Rest Villages aren't fully occupied and with all the need out there, is it true they're not fully occupied? And if not, why not? The ones that are up and running are the, the, uh, the RV Safe Park. It was completed in November and we were waiting for the county to announce who the provider is and that will be Salvation Army. So once they get that up and running, I don't think it will take long. There is, it's pretty quick once the provider is selected and then they work with the navigation team, the outreach workers, and everyone really does want to be so in So all the other ones are fully occupied? They're, they're fully occupied. So let's yeah. talk about that safe yeah. sleep RV park that will camp will be yeah. out by the airport on Northeast Sunderland. When do you think that will be open? Uh, it should be about two months, I think. That's what I always hear from the, it's a joint office is now in charge. Once the city does the construction part, then the county takes over because they oversee the contract for the provider. And so they're working out all the, the kinks on that. And um, I, I assume it'll be open in two or three months. Any idea if the folks that are in RVs on Northeast 33rd will be able to move into that? The navigation camp? team has a very elaborate system, but I know they'll be doing outreach to those members as well. And what we hear from all of the locations that are open now is that the area surrounding where they're now located looks better for the house neighbors as well. So 
And let's face it, really good fences make good neighbors. That's what we learned um, even in the in the shelter to housing continuum work. And so there's a, you know, a six uh, foot uh, guideline and making sure that it actually provides privacy. We have a map that it comes from the Housing Bureau that shows where the camps are and where the, the planned ones are. How long do you think it'll be till they're all open? And people can tell that you're really you know, under the skin of this. Are you gonna continue working on this even though Commissioner Rubio is taking over housing? Oh, you gotta, you gotta see it through. So um, the mayor wanted me to see this through and the good news is that we have others in uh, permitting or they're already beginning construction such as Peninsula Crossing out in uh, North Portland and then we have the Reedway site out in Southeast and then the one on uh, Northwest NATO. So they should be able to go boom, boom, boom um, once we get the permitting and the construction in, in, so in place. So when give us, can you give us I'm going to try to stay away from that because every time I try to give a date, it seems to not be that. You know what? We're turning a big ship. And so we have a lot of different parts, both at the city and the county, that have to come together to orchestrate this. And my job as elected official is to be the one that passes the policy and then pushes for it to be implemented. And you're Thank goodness see I, I made sure there was staffing to move this. And you're going to see this through to the end, till they're Absolutely. all open. They need to be part of the system. We were missing that on-ramp from chronically homelessness to stability. Now we have that as a part of our system, and that's exactly what the system needed. A lot of folks at home probably remember hearing about Mayor Wheeler proposing this other idea mm -hmm. that are these several large sanctioned camps and eventually banning unsanctioned camping throughout the city. He hasn't announced where those locations are. But given how long it's taken to get the Safe Rest Villages open, how is that going to work and what, to get these open? Well, I think as the Mayor Wheeler's told me many times, the Safe Rest Village work has, given, has been the trailblazing work and gives us a lot of a playbook on how to make sure this is expedited. It wasn't until eight months in that, that Mayor Wheeler did a emergency ordinance that gave me authority to place these. There was a lot of uh, opposition, not just from neighbors, but within bureaus about wanting to give up their property. So it was quite a journey. So you think that what you did is going to make things go a lot smoother Absolutely. for these new camps. Yeah. Now there's another idea from Chair Vega Peterson from Multnomah County who was on Straight Talk last week called Housing Multnomah Now. Mm -hmm. It's patterned after a pilot project in Seattle where they target one area at a time, one geographic area, say the central city, and try to get those folks into housing first and then before they move on to another one. What do you think about that idea? I think it's important that we have a lot of tools in the tool bank. So this is necessary. I applaud and I'm, I'm grateful that Chair Vega Peterson led with that. And I do think that uh, we have to look at also distinguishing between people who are houseless and people who are homeless. I think it's a lot easier to move people into housing quickly when they're houseless, which is usually from an economic hardship. For example, many elders and people on fixed income are now houseless or are, are threatened to be houseless. Mm -hmm. My mother was in that position, but because of uh, good friends at church, she was able to rent a, a, a room in their house for a very small amount of money, which allowed her to stay housed until she for the rest of her life, she remained independently housed. And so, but then my brother, the other story that I talk about, who had dual diagnosis that was untreated, Tim wasn't houseable. Mm -hmm. He needed um, a chance to be in shelter. He needed a chance to connect with services. And then it would have been an opportunity for him to have an on-ramp to that stability that you need when you're isolated in, a, in your own unit. Well, a lot of people associate you with, uh, with housing and then maybe 
homelessness and they, they look around and don't think things have improved very much. So maybe have blamed you over time as the housing commissioner. So now you're going from what was one of the biggest problems in Portland, homelessness, to a bureau that is most loved, the Parks Bureau that also is overseas, the smallest park in the world. Um, how does that feel? I mean, is that a big relief to be moving to something like that? It was actually, it was all part of the dialogue we were having. I think that it's really important to know that when I first started, I remember meeting with all of the infrastructure bureaus and I asked them, how is homelessness impacting your work on a daily basis? And all of them had a lot to say. So the point is all of our top initiatives, whether it's homelessness, economic development, community safety, they're a part of every work area. So the work area I'm taking on, culture and livability, has those same priorities. And our microeconomies are our neighborhoods. They are our parks. When people talk about why they move to Portland, why they want to visit Portland, of course, as you said, parks are always at the mm -hmm. top of that list. But that's a precious asset that we can't, uh, we can't squander. And so we have about, uh, you know, we have over 500 million in deferred maintenance with our parks. And if we don't get on that soon, then we'll lose those assets and our parks will then be, everyone will be blaming uh, somebody for why our parks are destroyed. So it's really important that we take this seriously with our parks as, as that number one asset in our city. Well, and that is a part of our economy. You mentioned about the deferred maintenance, but people did pass a, a big levy because people, people do love yes. the Portland parks. So how are we set up financially for well, parks? Think of like with the schools. The schools have levies and they have bonds. So levies are more for you know buying teachers and, and buying staffing and operations. And then the bonds are for capital. So it's really important that you kind of have both in your tool chest. One of the complaints that people do have about the parks, especially parents, is the inability to get swimming lessons for their oh, yes. kids. You know, during the pandemic, the pools were shut down. Then we had a lifeguard shortage. And now parents, they, they have alarms set to be able to get online right away to get those swimming spots when registration opens. And still hundreds, if not thousands of parents are not able to get swimming lessons for their kids. And now there are a lot of kids in middle school who don't know how to swim. Is there anything you can do as the new head of parks to try to make swimming lessons more accessible? Yes, it's, it's a workforce issue. So we need 500 swim coaches, swim teachers, and we have 50. And a lot of people, a lot of systems had a workforce challenges coming out of COVID and Parks was not uh, was a part of that when it came to the swimming teachers. And so there's a lot more um, incentives now for someone to be a swim coach. We've looked at that and we also are doing a heavy recruitment. So I intend those numbers to go so much you think higher parents than might have a little easier time. I'm this sure summer. hoping that they'll have relief in a couple months when we have a lot more swim teachers than we had last if year. If they don't, I know you're going to hear about it as a, oh, yeah. <laughs> as a new head of, of parks. You're also in charge of the Office of Community and Civic Life. It was yeah. once called the Office of Neighborhood Involvement. It was headed up at one time by Chloe Udaly, then it was headed up by Joanne Hardesty. And during those times, there are really strained relations with the neighborhood associations. What is your first priority now as you take over that office? We have 94 neighborhoods in our city. And when you uh, talk about Portland uh, nationally, internationally, even 10 years ago, it was one of our uh, big, big compliments was how Portland had a really robust neighborhood association system. So it's important to make sure that we press a reset on that. But civic life, big picture, is about how people engage with our government. And so it's very important to make sure that we bring that to the to the people in the neighborhoods. We had someone testify last week when we were looking at all of the new structure of the five areas and his advice was get out of your seats and get into the streets. And so civic life and neighborhood associations is where that nexus takes place. I love the fact that all of these assignments uh, come together to form culture and livability. So I'm the 
Commissioner of Culture and Livability, and it's such a great on-ramp to our new form of government. I think that's what Portlanders really wanted. They wanted to see the city actually function better. And I want to make sure we have an organizational system and chart that would actually attract a really great city administrator, city manager. The way it was currently set up isn't there. So the way that the mayor is working with all of us to bring these together is very wise. Before we go to break, another quick question about one of your assignments. You're in charge of the city's Office of Equity and Human Rights. A lot of people maybe haven't heard about that or know what that's all about. What, what will you be doing with that office? Yeah, well that office has been more internal and that's important to make sure that we are looking at our policies both in contracting and hiring and how we're serving most importantly the residents of our city. I want to take that out into the the neighborhoods and, in, and and knit that together with the with civic life and with the office of equity so that we can look at the demographics of each neighborhood and making sure there's no deficiencies and no disparities but we are in fact reaching and, and accessing all the people that live in those neighborhoods you have a lot on your plate with all of that plus you're going to be doing the uh, safe rest villages yeah that's what it's <laughs> like when you're in service to the city of portland in 2023 well, there is a lot more to talk about. We mentioned it, the city's new form of government on the way. Will Dan Ryan run again? We're going to ask him. And we like to call Ryan the Trailblazer Commissioner. What does he think about how his team is doing this season? That and more are just ahead. Welcome back to Stray Talk. I'm Laurel Porter, and we're talking with Portland City Commissioner Dan Ryan. Thanks again for being here, Commissioner. Absolutely. Always great to have you here. Let me ask you about this, what City Council approved, private security. And I know you have been the target of, of protesters and vandalism at your, at your home. Mm -hmm. What was behind the decision of City Council approving private security? Yeah, well, this is a national issue. I mean, we all know what, what happened to Nancy Pelosi's husband. Um, there's just stories, sadly, every week about uh, public servants um, being threatened um, and actually having uh, altercations with um, people who are protesters um, but are causing violence and destruction to their homes and, and actually putting them at risk. So it was not a surprise that I saw it on the, on the dais and that it was a part of our agenda. Um, I think that just my own personal experience, having the house vandalized a few times, having trespassers over a dozen times, it's just for doing your job. So it's, it's, it's not okay, but really what this is about is protecting and providing more security, more intelligence for all of the people who are public servants of the city, not just the elected officials, but the public servants that work for our city, over 7,000 employees, and even more importantly, those that come to City Hall need to feel safe when they're there doing um, dialogue and doing doing government uh, doing government's work which and it's is just too much people. for portland police to, to be able to do that yeah some cities put it all in their police but i like that our strategy is not to take police officers off the streets off of parole off of patrol and actually putting them in with us i think it's better that we do it this way than um than taking our assets out of the police has that already started the private security it's been it's been gradually i think they're building it so um i you know i we have a very small crew i think we're catching up with other uh, cities um across the country so um i i think it was pretty uh, self-explanatory when it came to the to the dais how will it work will it be as if as needed i think it'll just provide more intelligence i know the times that i've had security show up quickly, it's often been um, after the incident. So I think it's, it gives us more opportunity to just uh, work and get to know. Also, each person that they work with is different in what kind of security that they want, how they work with them. So I don't know, it's being rolled out as we speak, I'm sure. So the mayor probably has more details on this, but I do think that um, it was an easy vote and that's probably why it passed 
with the 5-0 vote pretty quickly. Well, one thing that wasn't an easy vote for you was whether to approve the city form of government. We mentioned <laughs> it switch. in the first segment, and we talked about this here on Straight Talk a while ago. We're going to be moving because voters approved a move from the commission form of government to a city administrator that mm -hmm. you talked about earlier. This was something you said you were going to vote against. There are going to be 12 commissioners from four different geographic areas, three from each area. Now that voters have approved it, do you think it's going to make city council more effective? What are your thoughts about it now? I don't, I don't really think about, will it make city council more effective? I mean, I was clearly saying that going from five to 13 elected officials didn't seem like a great idea to me. So that was probably my biggest pushback on it. What I've always been for is improving the way our government serves the people of Portland. And I think that the five, the way we've set up the bureaus now, so it's actually in work areas that actually connect with one another. So I'm the Commissioner of Culture and Livability, Rubio the Commissioner of Economic Development, and then we have the Commissioner of Public Safety, and we have the Commissioner of, um, uh, what am I forgetting, Infrastructure. It's just a smart way to set it up. You could say, why didn't we do this years ago? And so I think that we're in a really good transition period. I love change personally. I like continuous improvement. So I'm actually really enjoying my job more than ever because I think we're set up to succeed in terms of how we organize the city to serve the residents that live Well, here. perfect setup for my question because you said you're enjoying your job more than ever. Now all the city commissioners are going to have to run again if they want to keep their seats in November of 2024. Not that far away really when you think about running for office. Will you run again? I don't know. I'm going to stay so focused the next six months building this new practice area getting results with it, uh, making greater efficiencies with that, and in about six months I'll be able to reflect and see what I want to do next. Well, you know that I'm going to ask you about that next time <laughs> Next I, time you're here. Okay, that's fair, because <laughs> okay. six months, yeah. Well, let's talk about something really fun. Um, yeah. When we talked about this the last fall, that you were preparing for a big life event, a wedding. You married your spouse, Amo, at the coast. I mean, tell me about the, the wedding and, and how married life has been. Well, the wedding was nearly perfect. Because we have a lovely picture it was on, here. Oh, oh, that's sweet. It was at the Oregon coast, and it was, uh, it was you know, 70 degrees and sunny most of the weekend, and it was kind of perfect. So that was great. Uh, I will say that one, I call Amo my spouse now, and I don't have to use words like partner, which I always felt like we're pretty kind of dry and, and more businessy. And then um, what else is different? I, it's compromise. So I, I, even though we always compromise in every relationship, I think I take it more seriously now. So last two weeks ago, we went down to Eugene for a basketball game. We're going to a Blazer game this week. But on Super Bowl Sunday, I will be going to a movie. Yeah. Oh, that's a good compromise. Yeah, it's that's, compromise. <laughs> that's good. Okay, you talked about basketball and being the Trailblazer fan. I know you're the unofficial Trailblazer commissioner, but also Dan the fan. So let's talk about the Trailblazers. What do you think about the team this season? Wearing my uh, unofficial sports commissioner hat, I'm very um, dialed in to making sure that the assets at both the Rose Garden, the Moda Center, and the Veterans Memorial Coliseum are, um, are smart and that we really are taking care of those because we need to make sure that the entertainment industry that is sports and arts as well continues to be robust. Um, Dan the fan has had a rough week. I think, uh, you know, that's why you're a fan, but you experience those ups and downs. So last weekend, it was great to see those come from behind victories in Washington. And, uh, th and then, then we fell apart a little bit in Chicago. But the, the trades have been rough this week, to be honest with you. You know, four and a half years ago, Paul Allen passed away. Mm, and then the trust became like the overseer of the Blazers. And I'll just say that I noticed Phoenix Suns has a new owner 
and a new front office, and they really went for it this week in terms of the trade. They got Kevin Durant right, to join their right. team. So they're ready and poised now to go forward. Dame needs, um, to, Dame can leverage and attract stars. So I really want the ownership and the, the front office to figure out how to make um, some stronger trades so that we can see ourselves as a contender soon. And what about the possibility of a sale? We've talked about that before when there was a lot of buzz about possibly Phil Knight buying the team. What are you hearing? There's a lot of murmurs. Um, I think th there should be because, again, he passed away four and a half years ago. And I think the common uh, word on the street is that in about a year or so, the Blazers would be sold. And thank goodness we have some local investors that would love to own the Blazers. So I think more will be revealed. Do you think that they're going to make the playoffs? Oh, you're good. Uh, I think right now it looks like we're more in that play-in uh, contention. But I think what fans of the Blazers, like me, that went to the parade in 1977, my freshman year of high school, first time I skipped school, um, we're starting to get impatient. We really want to not just be a play-in or a seventh seed or an eighth seed. We want to be we want to be there. We want to be in the discussion of one of the top four teams in the in the in the in the in the association. And we lost the Shans, Bill Shanley, recently, and he really wanted to get another one of those rings in his lifetime, and sadly it didn't happen. So yeah, hopefully it, it happens sometime soon. I mean, that's a voice that I grew up with listening to. You know, you know there was a comforting to to be around the radio listening to Shans like give the play by play. Thank you, Commissioner, yeah. for joining us here on Straight Talk. Always a pleasure. Thank you for watching and for listening to our Straight Talk podcast. Join us next week when we talk with dynamic experts from Hazelden Betty Ford about recovery from addiction issues and treatment and hope available. We'll see you next week for Straight Talk.